have to show leadership. You have to show leadership. Nikki Freed takes on the governor, but takes heat for comparing him to Hitler. Conflict in the state capitol. Would allow Florida to save as many babies as possible. Abortion restrictions. Stop the teaching of true American black history. Teaching restrictions. It requires my signature. And drawing the lines. People can be rest assured that folks are working hard to just get it right. Gambling petitions ditched as fake. It's all live this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glennon Milberg. The big news of the week involved Nikki Fried as the newsmaker, not for what she did, but for what she said. Florida's Secretary for Agriculture and Consumer Services is the state's lone Democrat elected statewide and a candidate for governor in the party primary. But the headlines that Ms. Fried made this week came from her comments comparing Governor Ron DeSantis to Adolf Hitler. And let's begin there with candidate for Governor Nikki Fried joins us live. Uh, come, you know, Secretary Fried, great to see you. How are you this morning? Good morning. I am good. It's good seeing you both. Well, thank you. All right, so let's get right to it. You went on public radio the other day and in discussing Governor DeSantis's style of governance, how he is a mass power and uses power, you compared his rise to that of Hitler and Nazi Germany, and that Germany, that struck a lot of people, including the ADL, is over the top. Do you stand by those comments? You know, look, no one can ever doubt that I have uh, been very critical of the governor and that I'm not shy about my criticism of the governor. If anybody listened to the full interview of, of my uh, that morning, you know, it was more so talking about his tendencies. What this governor is doing is going on the line of fascism and dictatorship. You know, we have seen from time and time again the last couple of years the restrictions of the rights to vote, uh, protesting, now wanting his own uh, army and military, uh, to restrictions on abortion, um, to taking away local control, uh, to now asking for police forcing um, when it comes to our, our elections. So if you are seeing these tendencies, it should give rise to everybody, especially those that are living in South Florida that have left you know, communist countries and other dictatorships, and should rise to the concern that he believes that he is not only governor, but speaker of the House, Senate president, in charge of the Supreme Court, and it's his way or the highway, taking away power from our local governments, consolidating power under one individual. And I'm hearing the stories all across our state that people are nervous and people are scared about this type of dictatorial um, tendencies that we're seeing from the governor. Madam but Secretary, I can I, um, to your point, I think you brought up something very important. Context is everything. And so we did pull the clip of your interview. It was on the Florida Roundup and our friends over at WLRN Radio. Let's take uh, 30 seconds or so and hear that clip in context. He is doing everything possible to take away power from local governments, taking away people's abilities to protest, making it harder to vote, talking about, you know, banning books. Um, that's what dictators do. Um, instead of listening and trying to govern with the people, he's trying to govern over the people. And, you know, that I'm sorry. You know, I, I'm a, a student of history, too. I saw the rise of Hitler. I, I learned of those stories. Are you of, comparing DeSantis to Hitler? In a lot of ways, Yes. Candid, unscripted conversation, you really compared the rise of Hitler, not necessarily the dictator himself, although the headlines 
sort of obscured that, um, and this is not a judgment call either way on what you have done. Certainly, you are being criticized as a Jewish woman, as someone who's been to Israel on missions. Your, your comments did make news in Israeli news. Um, in hindsight, do you want to amend or stand by what you said? I think that you're cracked, Glenna. You know, if you take the whole thing in context, I was not comparing him to Hitler. I'm somebody, as you said, you know, Jewish, um, was brought up in, in, in an environment, in a community where we're taught never again. So when we see an injustice in society, we're supposed to stand up. I've been to Poland twice. I've gone to the concentration camps. Nobody should be compared to Hitler himself. The atrocities that we experienced as Jews, the six million that were lost um, of Jewish descent and six million of others. So no one should be compared to Hitler himself. My, my comparison was the rise of, of, of the dictatorship. And so that it should be the issues that we're talking about and not to get you know you saw the headlines the headlines were obviously taken out of context um i would never compare him to hitler himself and as that a, as, okay as a, as a follow-up i want to address your criticism and your use of a comparison to a dictatorship because unfortunately the governor is not here to talk to that and in his absence we do hope that he joins us one day but in his absence his supporters would say that what you're characterizing as a dictatorship, for instance, usurping local control with those kind of local control laws would be something that he would say is protecting businesses. And for instance, uh, election law, instead of taking away the right to vote or the ease of voting, he, he and his supporters would say it's tightening security, which everyone should be for, and so on and so forth. So for those reasons, how did you characterize this as a dictatorship, especially when the Republican Party in South Florida uh, has adopted an anti-dictatorship, if you will, talking points in their campaigns? Yeah, I think that that's the irony. And I think that there was an, an amazing editorial that was even written in the Miami Herald today um, that all of the things that we are seeing in this in this governor and being supported by leadership in the Republican Party, um, you know, we would talk about election security. You know, we had the most secure elections in 2020. You not only did the governor say that, the secretary of state, every every supervisor elections, even in red areas, said that they have the most secure and that this is not necessary. Even, you know, Mayor Suarez said that this is not necessary. So what he is doing is he's couching, you know, putting this into, into context and trying to put it a bow around it and say this is for election security. When if you get right down to it, this is trying to disenfranchise people to go into the votes. And now he's asking for his own policing force to show up at elections and to be there for the day of elections. Does he not trust the already institutions that are in place? You know, so what they're trying to do is they're trying to utilize, you know, trying to support businesses. My God, do you know what they're talking about right now in Tallahassee? They're telling businesses what they can and cannot say in their own businesses, telling businesses how to regulate COVID on themselves. I'm sorry, my dad was a diehard Republican. I grew up in a household where I learned about Democratic policies and Republican policies. Republicans are supposed to be about local control, home rule, free markets, less taxes, less spending, where that is not what's happening in the Republican Party today. And I need the Floridians of our state to wake up to what has been happening. They are manipulating you. And I have been trying to speak this. I've been calling this from his being a dictator and fascism activities since last election cycle, uh, excuse me, since last uh, legislative session when he restricted the right to protest. And it didn't come after January 6th. 
Yeah. It came after BLM, and yeah. you saw all across our state. Secretary Fried, let me jump in here. I, I think you would probably agree the main issue for most people in the state of the, uh, Florida is the state of the economy. And frankly, yeah. the state of the economy in Florida is pretty darn good. 3.9% unemployment, almost all the jobs lost during the beginning of the pandemic. 1.2 million jobs have come back uh, into the society, uh, into uh, the, the economy. Um, you know, the economy, and it's not that uh, Governor DeSantis deserves full credit for everything that has happened, but he would say, this has happened because I kept the economy open. What, what would you say? I wouldn't be surprised that he'd say that because his ego is is enormous um, and wants to take credit for everything, including all of the money that President Biden is sending down to our state for infrastructure uh, for the $1.1 billion for the Everglades. Uh, and so what I want to say to this to the people, I hear you. I'm hearing the stories, Michael, all over our state where they don't agree with that concept, where they can't afford rent. They can't afford homes. They can't afford the food and gases. And, and so when I talk to Floridians all over the state, you're right. The economy is the number one issue. Every single day, I'm getting stories from people in our state saying, I don't know what to do. I can't afford my rent anymore. I got 50% increase in my rent that's starting next month. These are the stories that I am hearing all across our state. And, and, to, and to paint this picture that everything is great, it's just not an accurate depiction of what is really happening in Tennessee. We, we under, you. you know, uh, Nikki, we understand that people all over the state are struggling with housing, with inflation. Now, the governor has proposed in his budget, you know, to get rid of the 25 cent per gallon gasoline tax for about six months at a cost of a billion dollars to give Floridians a break on the cost of gasoline when they fell up. Uh, would you support that? And I have, you know, I called um, actually for a state of emergency um, a couple of months ago asking for him to not only in decrease the cost of the taxes, but to grieve, have relief. So I have been supporting that and it's something that I called on a couple of months ago to deal with the taxes, but it's not on, on gas. But it's not just that, Michael. You know, we're sitting with a $15 billion surplus is what I think the last estimate is, is showing. Where is that money going? Are we going to increase our, our pay for our teachers to our first responders? Going to have some type of relief um, when it comes to purchasing of food? Where's our relief on our property taxes and our property insurance? That's not happening. And unfortunately, that's not the priorities of this legislative session. This legislative session is going back into culture war and things that are not impacting the people of our state. Although and, there, and there is, Madam Secretary, there is money for bonuses for first responders and for teachers to to your point but um can we take a quick break we're up against a break and we'll be back in a couple of minutes with more with nikki Freeze. we are back with florida's agriculture commissioner and candidate for governor in the democratic primary first nikki freed always great to have you on the program uh, madam secretary there was so much talk uh, that you actually revealed about hundreds of thousands of covid rapid tests that had been expired and was sitting unused the public didn't know about them for whatever reason they were not disseminated um, and they expired in september 
had been re-upped for about three months so that they could be used, expired again, and now are again re-upped for another three months. Um, what do you know about those tests? Are now are they now being disseminated? And I guess the bigger question is with expired tests, uh, do we have faith in those tests at all? And thank you for bringing this this issue back up. You know, this is something that we uncovered back in December uh, when the governor went MIA again and, and failed to show up to the people of our state. And we had called on the governor to ask to start disseminating this information, to start getting these tests out, to have statewide testing again, uh, which still he has not done. Uh, and so we have been told by the Department of Emergency Management that they did receive authorization from the manufacturer, um, and I believe also FDA. Um, to enhance the, the timing of these tests. So from my understanding that they are getting disseminated uh, and that they are reliable. Um, so I go back to the same things that I've been saying for, for the last two years. If you are feeling sick, you'll get tested. Do whatever you can to protect your family and your community. Um, and hopefully now you also saw that President Biden um, is, is sending out free testing sites, to, uh, free tests to people all across our country if you need them. Uh, it's a really easy website to go on to to get this information and to get these tests to you. Um, so do everything you can right now. We know that Omicron is starting to, thank God, uh, numbers are starting to go down. We're seeing decrease in our hospitalizations, decreasing in our ICU beds. Uh, so thank you to the people of our state who stood in those long lines. I'm sorry that the governor failed you during that time period, but thank you uh, for stepping up and doing what's right to protect our can community. I, uh, can I just jump in? Because as someone who has had a firsthand experience that, frankly, was just really confusing and um, kind of all over the place with the testing process, if there are home tests and rapid tests and people who get tested once or seven times and might test negative one day and positive the next day, where do we, how, I guess is the question, do we have faith in the data that's coming from those test results, some of which that are not even reported to the state. How, we're looking at sets of data and, and graphs of where Omicron is going, but do we really know? And I think that's part of the problem right now. And, and that's when been my greatest criticism from the Department of Health and the governor is the lack of transparency of the information. But on to your point, Glenna, that there is, there is a question of, you know, one, if you're taking a home test, and I know I've done that before, I've taken home tests for myself and my family, and if we tested positive, we wouldn't be reporting it anywhere. So that would not be something that would come into the system. So you have to kind of almost assume that there are, that if let's just say that there are 40,000 new tests today, there's probably a positive test. There's probably additional 10,000 somewhere in there that people may have done some of those home tests. So I go back to, we need people to start using common sense. We, we have now been through three or four ways of this virus. We know what it looks like at this point. We know the precautions that we need to take, um, but we also just need to take personal responsibility. The information and the numbers are important so that we know if we're in a spike or we're in a decrease or where the hot pockets are, um, which has been also my, my issue is that they have not released county by county numbers and age numbers in a very, very long time, almost a year now. Um, and so that's a concern. But yeah, I think that that's a problem that we don't know exactly how many positive cases are out there, which is why people at this point need to start taking yeah. personal responsibility, accountability, yeah. and do what they believe is in the best interest for themselves, for their family, and, and of course, our community. Yeah, Secretary Freed, we've got a legislative session underway. You well know you're there in Tallahassee. Uh, they're there for 60 days. Let's do a little lightning round on some of the really hot topic uh, bills that are under discussion right now and get your read on it. Your office processes 
concealed weapons permit, there is a bill that would allow open carry in the state of Florida. Anybody could strap on a gun and simply go out in public to most places. What's your view on that? Well, obviously, um, as the administrator of the, of the Concealed Weapons Permitting Program, uh, we have done a significant amount to uh, not only make sure that every single person has a complete and thorough background check, uh, to make sure that it's done in an expedient manner. We've been able to reduce the wait time significantly since taking over. Um, and so we have a great program. Uh, there's no reason that we need to change that. I, this is one of my other greatest criticisms of Tallahassee. If it ain't broke, why fix it? Um, and there's nothing broken with the way that we are dealing with the concealed weapons program right now. Um, and so I would not be in favor yeah. of open carry um, as the Republicans try to couch it as constitutional carry, um, but it is open carry. Yeah, let, let me move on to a subject which you have spoken out about and a lot of women in fact have, and that is this abortion bill, which would make it illegal for a woman in Florida to have an abortion after 15 weeks, and there are no exceptions for rape or incest. You obviously oppose this bill. Significantly, and I will do everything in my power, whether it is just using my voice, whether it is organizing, what it is being out there. Um, this is something that is personal to women all across our state and across our country. The sacred right to privacy, the, the freedom, you know, the Republicans love to talk about the word freedom, but the freedom to decide needs to be left in a woman's hands. Government should not play a role whatsoever to tell me what to do with my body. And, and I know that you've also interviewed him in years past, but unfortunately my, my, you know, my opponent in the primary has been on the other side of this issue. And so we as women and we as, as even the men out there that are supporting their women and their daughters and their, and their spouses, uh, this is something that the people of our state need to understand that this is a dog whistle call for the Republicans and to throw red meat. Um, this is not for the best interests of our citizens of our state. And really, this is a healthcare concern. Um, and who is going to be hurt the most? Those that don't have financial access to another state and can't get anywhere. This is a healthcare access issue. And shame on the Republicans for throwing this out. They filed this day one of the legislative session. And I know that this will be a, a thorn in their side in the 2022 election if they dare pass this this session. Nikki Freed, great to have you with us. Uh, we're going to be talking more about those things in the upcoming segments. I just want to say that a lot of elected officials who have been invited on live programs on a very tough week to defend the things that they said, many decline and you did not. You're here and we appreciate that of you and uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah, we appreciate you being with us, standing up. Good for you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great Sunday, everyone. You too. Thanks. All right, up next, Hanky Panky with petitions. Election supervisors around Florida are ditching thousands of petitions to expand gambling as fake. Stay tuned. We've all heard a lot in the last year about election fraud, even though there was very little of it the last time that Florida voters went to the polls. An investigation is now underway into fraud, and it involves petitions to get expanded gambling in Florida to voters. Hundreds of thousands turned into election supervisors around the state are now deemed to be fraudulent. Broward's election supervisor, Joe Scott, is one of those sounding that alarm, and he joins us now live. Joe, good to see you. Hi, good morning, Glenn and Michael. Great to be with you again. Joe, we are glad you are. So these petitions that uh, you suspect are fraudulent, fake, have four signatures. How many of them have you received? 
uh, well over 60,000 at this point for one of the particular um, uh, petitions that are out there. Um, you know, at this point, we're, you know, we're going to go ahead and seek a, an investigation into this. Because of the way the system is set up, it's hard to know whether or not people are actually um, trying to cause problems for the petition gatherers. So at this point, you don't know if it's the petition gatherers who are who are engaging in this activity and, and to what degree the actual political committee that's running the whole operation is. So it's hard to say exactly where the problem is, but there are easy solutions that could be put in place to make it so that these type of things don't happen. Hey, Joe, before we go into solutions, I, I just want to make sure everyone's in the fold here and knows what we're talking about. So to get a, uh, a something on the ballot to put before voters to put in the Constitution in November, there are several ways to do it, but only one for citizens, and, and this would be one of those, is to get enough petition signed, uh, signers to put it on the ballot in every single county in Florida. So in this particular effort to expand gaming, which is a huge uh, pot of money all the way around, this, this particular ballot issue is being backed by the Las Vegas Sands and also an Alabama tribe that have put hundreds of thousands of dollars into getting petition signatures to get people to sign off and then put that on the ballot. So it's a heavy lift. It's February 1st is the deadline for you and your office and the other supervisors to uh, to verify all those signatures. And that's what brings us to you're not able to verify them. In another county, there were uh, found to be dead people's signatures and, and one supervisor of election and his wife's signature <laughs> that he said he didn't do. So what is it the, the money in this particular ballot item vis-a-vis uh, -vis gambling? Is it is it all that money that's sort of creating this problem? So what, what's really creating this gather petitions. You, you hit the nail right on the head, Glenna, when you said that this is the only system that we have that allows regular citizens to potentially get something on the ballot. However, the, the way that the laws are set up, it is specifically set up to, one, make it so that you need a tremendous amount of money in order to actually accomplish a ballot petition, uh, an, an initiative drive, that's one problem. And the other problem is, is that the people who are gathering petitions as well as the political committees who submit them are not allowed to screen. So if somebody were to try and um, um, try to make the petition gatherers look bad, by filling out bad petitions and giving them to the to the petition gatherer, the petition gatherer by law has to then turn that petition in. So they don't have the, if, if so let's say they were out there and they actually met with a group of people and they said, hey guys, fill it out. And let's say those people were in opposition, secretly in opposition and they showed up to fill out bad petitions, they could do that. So there's really, so it, there needs to be an investigation. We need to figure out exactly what happened, but we can't immediately jump to the conclusion that the um, that the folks who are gathering petitions are in the wrong because they don't have the option of screening them. Once they're filled out, they have to turn them in. Yeah. Well, um, we should we should point out. Excuse me. We should point out that uh, Florida Secretary of State Laurel Lee has referred this to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, and I know Glenna was in touch with them this week, and they are basically confirming that they are looking into this for possible criminal charges. I mean, this is really serious stuff. 
It is, absolutely. It is, absolutely. But the, the problem is, is that, of course, we do need to investigate. There needs to be an investigation to figure out exactly what happened, because we can't jump to the conclusion that because we're looking into this for criminal charges, that there is a particular party that has, um, you know, it's, it's probably too soon to come to a conclusion about who exactly was um, conducting the criminal activities. So th there is a real level of intrigue here, and, and this is the election fraud that people, I guess at this moment, should be concerned and, and focused on. But Joe, there are uh, at least 15, a dozen or 15 other efforts to get questions on the ballot that are undergoing that petition process right now. So how is your office, one among 67, handling verifying the signatures for all of those efforts uh so what we're you know so we have actually over the past couple of months we've been having uh we've actually hired temps we've been using overtime like we've done a lot to try to make sure that we meet our obligation to process those petitions in a timely manner so as we get sometimes we'll get um, tens of thousands of petitions all at one time, and then we have to process those within 30 days. So it's really an effort to scale up our operations and get those petitions processed in time. Now, as I alluded to at the beginning of the segment, there are there there are ways that this can be done. You know, we have the technology now that this can be done securely online. It eliminates this whole process of having uh, people out there with paper and clipboards gathering groups and getting people to fill out petition forms, allow people to go online, do a secure sign-in, and, 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 um, uh, and have the petitions uh, verified that way. Um, that would be far more efficient, far more secure than the process that we're doing now. The problem, the reason we can't do this is that the law doesn't allow it, that political will isn't there for us to change the law in a way that would allow us to gather uh, petitions digitally. In a, in a secure digital way that would be far, far better than the process we're using right now. So what you are receiving now at your office and election supervisors in six other counties that have reported this problem, you get an individual sheet of paper submitted by a, um, a, a you know, a person who is paid, paid well to collect uh, signatures on petitions. Is that right? Well, so um, one thing with the law is that they're actually not supposed to be paid um, per petition that they gather. So the, the process of hiring and paying people to go out and gather petitions, it has to be done in a way um, that doesn't pay them by petition. So that way you don't have an incentive uh, for people to submit petitions um, that might be, um, that might not, that might get rejected, right? So the law already addresses that piece of it, that they're not supposed to get paid by petition. However, they're also not allowed to screen the petitions, as I mentioned earlier. So since they're not, once a petition gets filled out, they have to turn it into us. So if bad actors wanted to give them bad petitions to then turn into us, we would have to accept that. And all of that could be cleared right up by giving, you know, by having a, a secure digital online version where, where people can go online, similar to the way we do voter registration now. So we now encourage people when we have folks that go out and want to do uh, voter registration on um, on the paper forms, they're now required to tell you that you can go online and, and, and register to vote online. So, you know, the, applying that same process to petitions 
uh, would of course make this so that this whole problem that we're experiencing right now gets completely eliminated by allowing people to go and log in and, and securely do it online yeah. so that we know who the person is at the moment that they're filling out the petition. Joe Scott, uh, Broward's election supervisor, always good to have you with us, and thanks for explaining this, and good luck to you and your staff dealing with this mountain of petitions, uh, many of which appear to be fraudulent. Joe, thanks very much. By February 1st, <laughs> Joe, thanks. Yes, thank you, Glenn and Michael, for having me on. All right, thank you. All right, this week, some of the most controversial bills are flying through the state legislature on their own schedule. South Florida lawmakers in the thick of those are with us next. Week two of Florida's legislative session is in the books. It was dominated by redistricting the maps with revised boundary lines for congressional and state legislative districts, which determine who represents you in Tallahassee and Washington. Some of the first bills flying through committee, though, are some of the most controversial culture clash kind of bills. Two South Florida lawmakers have big roles to play. State Senator Chevron Jones, Democrat from West Park, and Representative David Barrero, Republican from Sweetwater, right there both with us live. So great to have you both with us today. Gentlemen, welcome. We're glad to see you. Good to see you too, Mike and Lena. Welcome, Representative Barrero, for the first time. We hope to, it'll be the first of many. Uh, Chevron Jones, the governor says we live in the free state of Florida where personal choice is preeminent, paramount, and that parents and individuals have that right to a choice, uh, except when it comes to abortion and women. And uh, the bill that you and your lawmakers are considering and that the representative voted on this week seems to be uh, going at a fast clip through the legislature uh, you don't support it. Why not? Well, uh, Michael, Republicans cloak themselves in freedom, but clearly uh, they pick and choose which freedoms and for whom they support these said freedoms. Uh, meanwhile, they are stimulating the freedom to vote here and nationally, uh, the constitutionally protected freedom to peacefully protest, the freedom to access reproductive health care, uh, the freedom to succeed and access real equal uh, economic opportunities. Uh, it's it's freedom on their on their terms, and we see we see this that's not only just happened this year. We saw the same thing that's happening uh, last year, and not only that, I believe that the governor, and along with my Republican colleagues, uh, they are going into a cultural war uh, and censorship. Uh, with, but yet, still, out of the other side of their mouth, they're saying that we live in the free state of the state, the free state of Florida. Free for who? Because it's clearly not for everyone. David Barrero, you in committee had a lot to say in support of this bill. Um, I read the bill and I, frankly, after reading articles about it, was really shocked to see that this is an infant and fetal mortality bill that's actually amendment to a 2019 statute about the tobacco laws and spending on tobacco education. And you have to read down probably almost two thirds through the bill to even get to the issue of pregnancy termination. And essentially what it changes is the time span by which Florida law allows a pregnancy termination to fewer than 15 weeks if you really read into the bill, uh, less than the first trimester scientifically. How, how would that even work? And, and, and in this very emotionally fraught issue of health and religion and politics, um, 
talking factually is probably a really good idea. So how did this get into a tobacco education bill? And, and how is it that less than the first trimester is even possible to decide whether pregnancy termination is appropriate? Thank you. Uh, you know, and I have to applaud our leadership's ability to intertwine what will ultimately help to reduce in fetal and infant mortality uh, amongst newborns and also unborn children. And, you know, this notion that Republicans do not stand for individual freedoms and choice when it comes to the issue of abortion is really relying on this premise that unborn children are also not persons. And like I was elaborating in committee, the unborn are also persons. If you look at what happens at 15 weeks of gestation, how developed an unborn child is, it's really morally incomprehensible to say that this is not also a person who deserves protections from the law. When you have a heartbeat, when you can literally feel pain, uh, an unborn child that is about six and a half inches long in, in development, I mean, how can we say that these unborn children also don't deserve protections of the law? So absolutely, we stand for individual freedoms and, and choices and liberty, but that also ends where another person's right begins, and that includes the unborn. Yeah. You know, Representative Barrero, um, I am reminded there was a column by our friend Steve Bosque in the, in the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel the other day on the subject of this abortion bill. He quoted the late Representative Jim King, a towering figure in the legislature who once said on this subject, if you ovulate or you, if you have ever ovulated, then you and you alone can have something to say about a woman's body and abortion. Now, uh, Representative King was a very conservative Republican. Uh, was he wrong? Uh, look, if, if, you, if you follow that logic and that train of thought, then me, by virtue of being a 33-year-old person, would be ineligible to legislate amongst a class of people who are under 33 years old or over 33 years old. This well, um, well, idea well, that's of identity a, That's an issue of chronology, not an issue of gender. I mean, or, you know. or gender. So are you going to say that only women can legislate on le legislation that affects only women or men can only legislate? That's that's that is a, a logical uh, farce. I mean, that's it, it is quite frankly ridiculous to assume that that train of thought. I mean, we're here elected by the people to govern and represent all those who have who represented us and who elected yeah. us rather. And that's what we're doing, is we're upholding the right to life for unborn children. We're holding the, upholding the right to life for all peoples, all those who are m marginalized. And, and quite frankly, like I was saying in, in committee, we are called to stand up and be a voice for, for the voiceless, and that includes the, the unborn. Sharon Jones, I want to just kind of turn this on its head for a moment. Uh, one of your colleagues in the House, Anna Escamani, uh, who is a representative in Orlando, floated a couple of amendments, none of which stuck, but um, whenever I look at nationwide, even as abortion law and now the anniversary of Roe versus Wade yesterday uh, enter a discussion, there's really never a discussion about amending any of these laws to involve the men involved in the pregnancies. And, and why not come up with an amendment that holds the men involved responsible as well, either financially or um, uh, time-wise responsibility for what is what could be a lifelong change in uh, for a woman and a child? Why aren't why is where are the amendments that involve men? Because I believe it makes too much sense. 
my colleagues have been going down this road to uh, uh, making it difficult for women uh, to make decisions on their own, which they are very capable of doing. Uh, we've been going down this road for over 11 years and, and plus some. Uh, I think it's, it's extremely clear that we also <clears throat> should point out uh, that Florida is falling behind what Mississippi and other states are doing when it comes to a woman's rights, right to choose, uh, even on the uh, on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. And I'll, I'll end with this, that I totally get that my, my colleagues, they believe uh, what they're doing is the right thing to do, but when it comes to uh, uh, reproductive justice, the reproductive justice is social justice, uh, because the individuals who need to get an abortion, they will go get an abortion. But the individuals who can't, uh, and those individuals who don't have the wherewithal to do it, they cannot do it. Those are black and brown um, women who will, will, will start doing alley uh, abortions, things that my colleagues there are very aware of. Uh, we are not, too, they're not too fond of taking amendments um, in committees, uh, especially things that they know is true. Either they will act, they will knock it as being out of order before the committee even start, or when the committee is in session, uh, they will give a justification of why that amendment cannot go forth, even while knowing that it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Representative Barrero, um, can you just address that? What, what I would just say is, look, we need to get to the heart of this bill. What the heart of this bill speaks to is the fact that most Americans, I think, strongly disagree with the fact that you can have an abortion, a woman can have an abortion after 15 weeks gestation. About 76% of Americans believe that abortion should be accessible to at most the first three months of pregnancy. And so what we're doing is, excuse me, the first three weeks, what we're doing here is limiting abortion to a point where we don't want to, where we want to recognize that unborn children at 15 weeks gestation they are individuals and persons who deserve protections just like you and I do. Just because they're not as developed as you and I are or can speak as you, as you and I can doesn't mean that they don't deserve the full extent of the protections of the law. All right, gentlemen, uh, we have other things to talk about, about what you are considering in Tallahassee. There is so much, so stick with us. We'll be right back. We are talking with two prominent members of the state legislature from state Florida, from South Florida, State Senator Chevron Jones of West Park, a Democrat, and Representative David Barrero, a Republican from Sweetwater. Uh, Representative, I see that your uh, undergraduate degree from FIU is in construction. I know you've got an MBA as well. So let me ask you something in your area of uh, professional expertise and that is about affordable housing. I think that you and Chevron Jones and everybody else would agree that the, the, the cost of housing for people in South Florida is just going through the roof and the legislature has got to do something about it. The median price of a home in Miami-Dade County now is $515,000. And of course, people who rent their rents are going up. So what are you and the legislature going to do and the governor to address the affordable housing crisis? I think that's a, a great question. And it's actually one that I submitted a bill for. Uh, it's called uh, Local Government Land Development Actions. And what the bill that I propose does is it asks cities to have a residential infill development ordinance in place to encourage the, the development of uh, housing in, in their cities and in their jurisdictions. 
Uh, right now, I believe that what we have is an enormous inventory crisis where, um, in part, because there are many factors that are right now causing the increase of, of the median price in homes across the state, including uh, logistical issues, supply chain issues, labor shortage issues, taxes, the price of gasoline going up. There are large macroeconomic issues causing this, but I think that the best way to tackle this is through a free market standpoint. So when you increase the supply and the production of anything, generally speaking, it creates uh, an environment where the price of that particular commodity goes down. So what we're trying to do is, is to encourage cities and counties to have a development ordinance in place that encourages more efficient uh, and more available land for uh, home building. Another bill that is getting a lot of attention this week, Chevron Jones, you've had a lot to say on a bill that's actually entitled Parental Rights in Education. Uh, a lot of people are looking at this bill, reading through it, and taking it to mean that critical race theory is now banned or would be banned in Florida schools, not that it is taught right now. Um, I, I want you to, to speak on this bill, parental rights bill, and what it entails, and why the components of it that, that really give parents the right to sue if they don't like what's being taught. Uh, I, I want to hear what you have to say about this particular bill and why the parents' rights should not be addressed as such. Well, Glenna, I, I want to start with this. I've stopped calling it the critical rights, uh, the, uh, the critical race theory uh, bill. Uh, this is the governor's attempt to to do away with the teaching of true American history, Black history, to be exact. Uh, governor DeSantis and the administration know full well that critical race theory is not taught in K through 12 schools, and it's unfortunate that instead of running on forward-looking ideas to improve people's daily lives, those kitchen table issues that we know that families are in need of. We, we just spoke about affordable housing with Miami um, having the highest rent right now, um, uh, the fifth most expensive uh, uh, rent in the nation. Uh, rather than dealing with those issues, we're dealing with a non-issue, doing away with black history, also penalizing teachers uh, if they even teach anything dealing with uh, the correct teaching of black history. Out of one breath, uh, the Republicans are saying, yes, teach factual history, but out of the other breath, uh, they're saying, yes, but you can't teach that. So what, what do you want teachers to teach? Either you want them to teach about segregation, either you want them to teach about uh, redlining, either you want them to teach about the lynchings, either you want to teach them about slavery, or you don't. Uh, but the governor has traveled the state, he has traveled the country, touting about critical race theory, a subject that is not, not only is it not taught in our schools, I still want to see the parents and the students who have come to the state to say that this was a problem that, because that their is school not, you know, is teaching it. What, th those things aren't even enumerated in, in the bill, which is really interesting. And, and when it talks about banning indoctrination, and I'm curious as a lawmaker, how what is indoctrination? How would you define yeah. that it, to further a law? Well, I don't understand what they mean by in indoctrination because, first of all, you, know, you, you can't say that you want to give teachers educational freedom, but teachers, but you're telling uh, teachers what they can and they cannot teach. There is no teacher. There has been no sign. There is no evidence of any teacher who have said that, uh, or administrator, that their teachers are indoctrinating children when it comes to black history. Uh, but but just last week, many of my Republican colleagues, they posted about Martin 
Martin Luther King and they quoted everything about him, but I can guarantee you if Martin Luther King was living today, he would not stand or be even tolerate what the Republicans are doing now when it comes Chevron. to not just the CRT or even voting. Chevron Jones, I've got to jump in here. I beg your pardon. Representative Barraro, we will see you again. Good luck in the rest of the uh, session in Tallahassee. We are glad you were with us today. And stay Thank in touch. And we'll be right back. To watch today's interviews or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast, quick, grab your phone, scan this QR code, or just go right to the This Week in South Florida section on local10.com. Thank you so much for being here with us. And remember, we're online there 24-7. And remember, as always, stay informed, get involved. Have a great Sunday.